Hello, my dear friends. This is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby coming to you live from the Torch Center in lovely Houston, Texas. It is great to be together for another Parsha podcast. This week is Parshas Vayishlach. Jacob is going to be reunited with his brother. Initially, he's worried it's going to be a violent encounter with his brother. Ultimately, it is somewhat anticlimactic. Things work out great. And I found some really interesting ideas that I wanted to share with y'all on this week's Parsha. So first of all, after Jacob navigates the challenge of his brother Asaph successfully, he leaves him, he departs from him, he initially goes to a place called Sukkos, and then eventually he goes to the outskirts of the city of Shechem, in the land of Canaan, and we read in the end of chapter 33 that he buys a parcel of land outside the city of Shechem. He buys it from Chamor, the father of the individual named Shechem, who's also the king, if you will, or the chieftain of the city of Shechem. He buys it for a 100 kishita. And the final verse of chapter 33 tells us that he set up an altar and he proclaimed it, God, the God of Israel. So apparently, Jacob is naming the altar that he's building in the outskirts of the city of Shechem. He's naming it God, the God of Israel. Now, of course, the problem is, is that we don't name altars after God. How could we apply the name of God to an inanimate altar that Jacob is building? So Rashi addresses this question. Rashi tells us that don't think that Jacob named the altar with the name of God. Rather, he used the altar as a means to invoke the miracle that happened to him. That's the first interpretation of this verse. What does it mean? Jacob erected an altar and he called it God, the God of Israel. It means that he's invoking the miracle that happened to him. That's the first interpretation that Rashi gives us. And then Rashi tells us something very fascinating. Rashi says, quoting from the Talmud, that what the verse is telling us is not that Jacob named the altar God, the God of Israel, or named the incident God, the God of Israel. Rather, what it's telling us is that God named Jacob, he renamed him El. The word El typically is one of the names of God. But here we're told that the Almighty named Jacob El, And who did that? The God of Israel. A very, very interesting teaching here in the Talmud. That it doesn't mean, when the verse says, and he named it, it doesn't mean that Jacob named the altar. Rather, God named Jacob, renamed Jacob El, which typically is one of the names of God. But now this name is being applied onto Jacob. As an aside, in the Torah, there are many names for God. And all but one of them, the ineffable name of God, the tetragram, what's known in Hebrew as the Shem Havaya, the four-letter name of God that we don't pronounce, all of the other names of God are indeed applied to non-divine entities. So, for example, the word Elohim, typically it's a name used for God, but throughout the Torah, that same word is applied to non-divine things. For example, Moses is told he will be Elohim. He will be a master. In the beginning of Genesis, we're told that the Bnei Elohim, the sons of the powerful ones, again, not a description of 
God. Uh, in addition, the term Elohim is used to describe a court. What it means is that this, this word Elohim means power, and sometimes it's capitalized, and it's a nickname of God, so to speak, and then we don't say it unless we're talking about God himself or reading a verse. That's an example of a word that often, most often, is used to be one of the names of God, but actually it has other meanings that are non-divine. Similar tzvakos, shakai, there's other names of God that are applied to things that are not God. Similarly, over here the Talmud tells us that the name El typically means God, but in this context, it is the name of Jacob. Very unusual teaching in the Talmud quoted by Rashi. Why would Jacob be named El? Doesn't make any sense. So I saw a very fascinating idea quoted by one of the commentaries, the Kli Yakar. He says as follows, we know last week's parasha, there is this nocturnal vision that Jacob has. He is dreaming and he sees a vision, a prophecy. He sees a ladder that's going up and down with the angels going up and down. God gives him a blessing. And afterwards, Jacob makes a pledge, and he pledges a bunch of things. One of the things that he pledges is that he is going to tithe, he is going to dedicate 10% of all that he has to God. Jacob, he's the one who comes up with this concept that 10% of everything that he has is going to be given to God. In fact, the commentaries point out that actually 10% of his children are also dedicated to God. So Jacob, he represents, he embodies someone who says 10% of all that he has goes to God. And therefore, says the Kliakar, 10% of what God has in store for Jacob in heaven is going to be given to Jacob here. This is a little bit of a complicated idea. The Talmud tells us, we're told here in the Kliakar, the Talmud tells us that all the righteous people when they die, when their soul transitions to the spiritual world, they're going to be given a reward of 310 worlds. A very interesting idea. Quotes a verse in, in Proverbs. The verse says that the Almighty is going to bequeath to his lovers, to the people who love him, yesh. The word yesh means substance. But in Hebrew, every letter has a corresponding number, and the word yesh, the yud and the shin, equals 310. And the Talmud tells us that when the verse says that God is going to bequeath to those who love him, yesh, what it's telling you is that God is going to bequeath to those who love him, to the righteous, he's going to give them 310 worlds. Now, what this means it's a fascinating idea. What does it mean that God's going to reward us with 310 worlds? It's a very, it's a very striking, very intriguing idea. We're going to be rewarded by God. How much are we going to be rewarded? The equivalent of not just one world of reward, not even 10, dozens, 100, 310. That's what the Talmud tells us. And all the commentaries, of course, talk about that. What is the significance of number 310? Why 310? Why not uh, 1,000? Why why not 300? There is a mountain of commentary on this particular citation of the Talmud. But what we're told, again, is that the Almighty is going to give every righteous person 
310 worlds of reward for their good deeds that they did. And therefore, says the Kliakar, the Hebrew word here that Jacob is being assigned, he's being given a new name, even though in this parasha he's named Israel, and of course his original name is Jacob, his name is also Israel, and now we're told his name is also El. Says the Kliakar, the numerical value of the word El the Aleph is 1, the Lamed is 30, it's 31. And if you do the math, Jacob, of course, is righteous. So he is destined to receive 310 worlds as reward, as compensation for his righteousness. But because Jacob was someone that always gave God 10% of everything that he got, therefore God says, you know what? I'm going to respond in kind. I'm going to go and treat you the way you treat me. You give me 10% of yours. I'm going to give you 10% of the reward that I have in storage in waiting for you. And therefore, the meaning behind this idea is that God called Jacob L, which again equals 31. That is hinting at the fact that Jacob, he received the equivalent of 10% of his eternal reward. He got a down payment for that over here. Now, the reason why this is such a striking idea to me is because there's a very famous teaching in the Talmud. The Talmud tells us about the importance of giving charity. Of course, that's one of the central mitzvot in the Torah. It's one of the mitzvot. It's one of the Torah commandments that the Talmud tells us is equal to all 613 mitzvot combined. So obviously, it's very fundamental. But the Talmud tells us that if someone gives 10% of their wealth, of their income, to charity, then as a result of that, they're guaranteed to become wealthy, to become rich. And in fact, the Talmud continues and tells us that this is the one area of life where we are allowed to test, to challenge God. We're going to give 10% and we'll see if he indeed delivers and he makes us wealthy. Everywhere else, we're not allowed to test God. You can't say, you know what? Let me desecrate the Shabbat and if God really exists, let him strike me down with fury. Let a bolt of lightning come at me. We don't do that. We don't test God. God has his time and his place for dispensing reward and punishment. And that's not here. However, with respect to charity and specifically with respect to tithing, we do see a change in that someone can indeed test God, someone can take their balance sheet, can take their income statement, can take their profit and loss statement and say, okay, I'm going to start to give 10% of my money to charity. Let's see what happens next year. Do I become wealthier? That's the one area that you are allowed to test God. Because this is guaranteed. This is reward in this world. Normally, the reward happens in the spiritual world. But here there's an exception. That's what the Talmud says in the book of Tennis, page 9a. And those of us that are fortunate enough to be involved in a nonprofit business and need to fundraise money for the support of, of Torah and the cause of the nonprofit, this is a very powerful teaching to show the importance of giving charity and, you know, the good feeling that you have when you can facilitate someone else to give. But it never made sense to me. Why is charity and specifically tithing, why would that facilitate, why would that engender something different 
than all the other mitzvahs. You do a mitzvah, you got to wait till Olam Abad, to the spiritual world, to get your reward. And here we see something's different. Here we see that you're going to become rich in this world. And here we find the answer. Jacob was the one who said, I'm going to give 10% of everything I have to God. And God responds, I'm going to give you 10% of the 310 worlds that I have for you. I'm going to rename you L. I'm going to give you the 31 because I'm going to respond in kind. And I think that's very comforting, especially people, all of us, you know, we all struggle with the difficulty of giving. The Torah tells us you have to give 10% of your income. And I personally do it. I personally have a spreadsheet to make sure that I'm giving my 10% per annum. And I know dozens, if not hundreds of people that do the same. But in the general world, that's unheard of. That's someone who is outrageously generous, someone who gives 10% of their income to, to charity. And I think here we can be comforted by knowing that this is not for naught. This is not money that I'm losing. This is my appeal to God, so to speak. I'm going to give 10% of what I have to you, and I know that I'm going to be covered on the back end. I know that you'll have my back, that you'll shower me with tremendous blessing, and I'm not going to lose as a result of my generosity. And that brings us to our next idea that we want to talk about in the Parsha. Of course, in the middle of the Parsha, chapter 34, it's a very difficult chapter to read. It talks about what happened to Dina, the daughter of Jacob. She is accosted. She is assaulted. She's raped. And then the sons of Jacob, they come up with a plan to get revenge. And they convince the city to all circumcise. And when they're vulnerable, they come and they slaughter the entire city. Now, this Dina character, of course, she's the daughter of Jacob, but we read last week that she has a very interesting backstory. She was the seventh child born to Leah. And Rashi tells us something very fascinating, that she was actually initially supposed to be male. She was supposed to be a boy. She was supposed to be Leah's seventh son born to Jacob. But at that juncture, Jacob already had 10 sons, and he was only slated to have 12, and everyone knew that. And Rachel at that time was still barren. So had Leah bore a seventh son to Jacob, then there would only be one son left for her sister Rachel. So she prayed, Rashi tells us, she prayed and her child, the baby within her womb, Dina, flipped and turned into a female. That's what Rashi tells us. Now, we have a principle in Jewish philosophy, that when someone forfeits, when someone gives, you don't lose. And here we see seemingly a contradiction to that. Leah is on the brink of mothering seven of the tribes of Israel, and she was going to have seven, not six, of the tribes descend from her. And because she was magnanimous, and because she forfeited a son, because she prayed and the gender of the child within her flipped from being male to female. She ended up with Dina, and she only ended up with six of the tribes of Israel descending from her, not what she would have had, seven. And we, again, we have a principle that when you forfeit for someone else, when you're willing to suffer a loss so that someone else can have a gain, in the end, you're not going to lose. So how is it possible 
that Leah lost one of the tribes of Israel. So I saw something really fascinating. You know, after you read this chapter, of course, Shimon and Levi, they have this trick, this deception, and they slaughter the whole city, and they go and seize Dina, bring her back to Jacob. And we don't really read what happened to Dina in the aftermath of this story. We just read about her in this episode, and that's it. She doesn't appear anywhere else in the Torah. But the Midrash fills us in to the aftermath of the story. And the Midrash tells us that actually as a result of what happened between Shechem and Dina, Dina became pregnant. And she bore a daughter. And the sons of Jacob, Dina's maybe, shall we say, zealous brothers, they couldn't stand the look of this child. They said this child is a testament, is a monument to that terrible, horrific assault and rape that happened to our sister Dina. So they wanted to actually execute that child. They wanted to get rid of any remembrance of that story. So what did Jacob do? Jacob took a golden amulet that had the name of God inscribed upon it, put it on the neck of this girl, of this child, his grandson, his almost illegitimate grandson, via Dina, and sent her off packing. And the angel came and took this young girl and brought her down to Egypt. And she was adopted by Potiphar. And she grew up in the house of Potiphar. And of course, later on in Genesis, we're going to read how Joseph is going to also be sold as a slave to Egypt. Eventually, he is going to be working in the house of Potiphar. And then after he ascends to greatness, he becomes the viceroy of Egypt. He marries a woman by the name of Asnas, the daughter of Potiphar. And the Midrash tells us that that Asnas, that girl, is actually the daughter of his half-sister Dina, and she was born out of the episode of Shechem, which is, again, fascinating. Now, if we follow that story a little bit, what happens to Joseph? Joseph and his new wife, Asnas, they have two sons, Menashe and Ephraim. And then, of course, Jacob also comes down to Egypt. And before he passes, he takes those two sons, the first two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Menashe, and he elevates them to the status of his children. They are nominated to be tribes of Israel. And of course, Joseph himself, he's one tribe, and now he's split into two. And the tribe of Levi really, for many things, for many matters, is not included amongst the tribes of Israel. So there is no, for example, there's no portion of the land of Israel that is accorded to the tribe of Joseph or to the tribe of Levi. Instead, it's given to Ephraim and Manasseh. So if you do the math, you'll discover something fascinating. Leah was destined to have seven sons to be seven of the tribes of Israel. And she, in, a, in an act of magnanimity, decided to pray to convert that son into a daughter, and that, of course, is Dina. And after this very difficult episode with Dina, she has a child. This, this is Leah's granddaughter. 
And ultimately, if we read the whole Genesis, and again, we have the understanding of the Midrash, we discover that not only did Leah not lose one of the tribes by praying to have Dina convert into a female, she actually gained the tribe. Because you know what? Via that line, she is the great-grandmother of Ephraim and Manasseh, and both of those two, they become tribes of Israel, and thus she is the matriarch, not just of the six tribes that are named after her six sons, but also the two tribes that come from Ephraim and Manasseh via this, again, circuitous episode of she having Dina, Dina having Asnas, and Asnas marrying her uncle, her half-uncle Joseph, and bearing Ephraim and Manasseh, which is, again, a very fascinating insight to this principle that when someone gives, when someone forfeits even, when someone feels like they may be losing, but they're doing it for a good cause, ultimately, they don't lose, they only gain. And finally, another idea I saw at the end of the Parsha, the end of the Parsha is listing all the children of Asav and all the wives, and the verse runs through them one after another, all his wives and all his children. But there's a very interesting Rashi in chapter 36, verse 3. So it's talking about one of the wives of Esav. Her name was Basmas, and she was the daughter of Ishmael. So she was, in effect, Esav's half-cousin. So he married the daughter of Ishmael. Her name is Basmas. And Rashi points out that Earlier in the Torah, the very last verse of Parshas Toldos, it tells us about this union. It tells us that Esav went to Ishmael and he married his daughter. But there, she's not called Basmas, the daughter of Ishmael. She is called Machlas, the daughter of Ishmael. So Rashi's question is, why is the first name of Esav's wife, who is the daughter of Ishmael, why does it change from Machlas to Basmas? So some of the commentaries say, well, maybe he married two two of the daughters of Ishmael. One was named Basmas, one was named Machlas. That's one of the answers that is given by the commentators. But Rashi tells us something very fascinating. Rashi tells us that he found in the Midrash that the Midrash says that there's three people that have all their sins atoned for. Number one, someone who converts to Judaism, the day they convert, all their previous sins are annulled, someone who ascends to greatness, and someone who gets married. And this is learned, this is derived from this unusual change in the name from Machlas to Basmas. The fact she's given two different names, the word Machlas, the Hebrew word for atonement, for expiation, is Machal or Mechila. And therefore, the fact that his wife is called Basmas, and now we're told she has a different name, that's hinting that when Esav, when he got married, and really anyone who gets married, all their sins are atoned for, all his sins are expiated. They get annulled. That's what Rashi tells us. So again, three people that have all their sins cleared up, someone who converts, someone who ascends to greatness, and someone who gets married. And that's learned over here from the story of So, of course, there's a general question, you know, why are these people who haven't really repented for their sins, why are their sins atoned for? That's question A. But question B is like, you know, 
there's a lot of people that got married in the Torah. And for some reason, Esav, he's the one who is used as the example to teach us that someone who gets married, their sins are removed, the sins are cleansed, the sins are eliminated. Why are we using Esav, one of the villains of Genesis? Why is he being used? Why is he being portrayed to teach us this lesson? So maybe there's many answers to these questions. So, for example, I saw in the Maharal, the Maharal says something fascinating. He says that if someone does a sin, well, then they have to atone for their sin, they have to repent, or they have to get punished for it. But if a person changes their identity, if they're able to change the person that they are into a different person, well, then they're not the person who sinned, and therefore you have the wrong guy. You can only punish the person who did the crime. You know, if you have two people who are twins, they look identical. One of them did the crime, the other one didn't do the crime. You can't knock down on the door on the person, on the twin who didn't do the crime and say, hey, you're guilty. He'll say, no, I kind of looked like the person who did the crime, but you have the wrong guy. Similarly, tells us the Maharal that someone who's single, after all, you know, they're half a person. And then they get married and now they're a full person. So who did the sin? The single person did the sin. Who are we trying to judge right now? The married person. Well, it's a different person. And therefore, you cannot apply the sins of a single person upon that same person when they get married because now they're a different person, different identity. They didn't commit that crime. Similarly, if someone is a regular person, an average Joe, a lay person, and then they ascend to greatness, they take upon themselves the responsibility of the public. Previously, they were an individual. Now, they're a public person. If you're a public person, your your identity is expanded. You're a different person than you were previously. And therefore, we cannot punish, so to speak, you for the sins of the previous you who's a different person. And finally, of course, when someone is not Jewish and then they convert, their identity changes entirely. And consequently, we cannot punish them, so to speak, for the sins that they did in their previous lifetime, if you will. That's one of the ideas that we see in the commentaries to explain this phenomenon of these three people and their status changes and all their sins are forgiven. I remember hearing a different idea. I remember hearing an idea that when someone alters their reality to create a new reality in which the erstwhile sin is less likely to happen, that in itself equals atonement. Meaning, you have someone who's single. right? When someone is single, especially a man, they have certain tendencies towards sin. Well, how do you fix that? So there's a few ways to fix it. You could try to address the problem head on, or you could try to change your reality. You could try to structurally alter the world in which you live and say, okay, I'm going to try to create for myself. I'm trying to live in a different kind of world in which this challenge doesn't really surface as much. You could, of course, try to contend with a challenge head on, but it's much better, we're told over here, to try to craft for yourself a world, a reality 
in which those temptations are not present. Try to institute a system in which you could sidestep this particular challenge. Someone who's single doesn't really have a kosher outlet to an inborn drive that would equate to sinning. You just get married. And what happens? You're now living in a new reality. Now you have a kosher outlet to that otherwise or previously unfulfillable or kosher way desire. And therefore, as a result of that, as a result of just setting up the system that reframes or reorients the world in which you live, God says, okay, you've now entered a different kind of world, a world in which those challenges don't exist, and therefore, I'm not going to demand from you, so to speak, payment for your previous sins. So what this is telling us is that there's two ways to repent. There is someone who sinned, and they say, you know what, let's try to fix the sin. Let's try to uproot the sin from within me. Let's try to regret it, try to walk it back, try to atone for it, dealing with it directly. A second way, maybe a, a more elevated way to deal with it is to say, I'm going to change the world in which I live in. I'm going to try to figure out a, a structure, a system in which I'm not going to fall into that same trap. I'm not going to make that same mistake. And that is a way to also repent and to also have all your sins that you committed because you were in a different system, have all those sins expunged from you. And perhaps this is why this teaching is conveyed specifically with respect to Esav. If you go back to the end of Toldos, to the end of that Parsha, the first time we're told that Esav marries the daughter of Ishmael, the verse that precedes it tells us that Esav saw that his Canaanite wives were despised in the eyes of Isaac, his father. So Esav already had previous wives. And he saw that they were sinners, they were idolaters, his father wasn't happy with that. So he said, you know what? Let me marry Basmas, the daughter of Ishmael. Alternatively, she's called Machlas, the daughter of Ishmael. Because after all, Ishmael, he's a monotheist. And therefore, you know what? I'll have at least one good wife to show my father. And Rashi tells us some very harsh criticism of Asaph's decision. He was wicked, but he added another layer of wickedness to his wickedness because he did not divorce the first wives. He had wives that were idolaters. He had wives that caused his father Isaac to be displeased. And his solution to that problem was not to divorce those wives and start from scratch, but instead to add a third wife, the daughter of Ishmael, to, to his collection of, of wives. So this is an amazing insight that the same marriage, the same union that Rashi tells us in chapter 28, verse 9, the same marriage that Rashi says to us, it was a marriage of wickedness. Asaph was adding another layer of wickedness to his pre-existing wickedness. That same marriage, later on, Rashi says, oh, he had all his sins forgiven. Maybe what this is telling us is that even someone like Asaph, who in this particular marriage, it was a sinful marriage. It was a malicious marriage. He was not trying to abandon his previous diet, if you will, of idolatry 
He was just trying to say, you know what? Let me pull some more wool over my father's eyes. Let me marry this woman. And then I could tell my father, you know what? I married a righteous woman. It was a sinful marriage. It was a marriage done solely with the intent of deceiving his father. If there ever was a marriage that you may argue should not have the atonement clause to it, should not result in all their sins being cleansed, it would be this one. Yet specifically here, Rashi says, you know what? Of course, Asaph was a sinner. And of course, this particular union, his marriage to Basma slash Machlas, the daughter of Ishmael, was a sinful one. Nevertheless, it's such a powerful transformation when someone sets up a system that's going to change the reality, that's going to minimize the likelihood of sin, that's such a powerful act of repentance, even, even if it's not done intentionally, even if, again, to the contrary, it's done with malicious and sinful intentions, it's still so powerful that it will result in having your sins expiated. A very powerful idea that when we want to cleanse ourselves from our sinful ways, from our spiritual maladies of yore, of course, we're encouraged to repent from it for every sin. But here we see an advanced way of doing it, to try to set up our lives in a way to make fundamental structural changes in our lives that will allow us to live above those sinful ways, to institute a system in which we're less likely to fall into that trap. And that in itself is an act of repentance that will garner atonement for our sins. A very powerful idea that we see in the end of this week's parsha. Thank you for being the best and most faithful audience in the history of podcasts. Again, this is the Parsha Podcast. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. The email address is rabbiwolbygmail.com. If you have not yet signed up on our website, torchweb.org, for your mitzvah magnets, please do so. There's a banner on the homepage. And as always, we deeply appreciate your listenership. I deeply appreciate all the support that I get from this fantastic and wonderful audience. Thank you so much. Have an amazing Shabbos, and I'll speak to you next week.